Let's pray, and then we're going to look at Exodus chapter 4 tonight. Father, thank you for a time of worship together to be reminded that our Father does hold us in the cleft of his hand. So reminiscent of Exodus 33 and 34, where a heavy-hearted Moses needed to see God. And he put him in a rock where he could protect him from the blaze of his glory. And he passed by and Moses was reminded of the greatness of God. His attributes were in full view. And so Lord, we thank you that you do the same with us. You protect us from your ultimate wrath and anger. You put that on your son and you've given us love and peace with you. And you protect us in difficult times. And we can run to you, Lord. We give you thanks for that, Lord. We're grateful for our life that we have in you. We thank you for this time together. Now help us as we look at your word. Help us understand difficult truths at times. To grasp these. Understand what you're saying. See you through these. But also apply them to our own lives, Lord. In your name, amen. I entitled the sermon, Here I Am, Lord. No, wait, what? <laughs> As you study chapter 3 and 4, particularly of, of Exodus, there's, there's this Moses who, who hears God talk to him, and, he's, and his first response is, Here am I, Lord. But as he hears what God is asking, uh, you can see the doubt that starts to come in. You can see the objections to the word of God. And he struggles. And as we looked at the first two last week, we will look at two this week that I think will hit us between the eyes. As we put ourselves in the shoes of Moses, and even in our own callings that God has for us, as we serve him. See, the problem with following God's will is, is it doesn't lie with God, it lies with us. <laughs> we, we, we are stubborn and stubborn in our, what we might call our unredeemed humanness. Certainly, we're, as Christians, as a saved person, we're, we have a perfect standing with God, but there are struggles. We struggle in our unredeemed humanness, and, and at times, we struggle to deny ourselves and follow God. I've met with so many people through the years that have told me, they say, Scott, I, I think God always wanted me to do this, and I refused. We're, we're stubborn. We, we wrestle with obeying God. We bombard God with a myriad of excuses why we can't serve Him in different ways. We often are not very quick to obey Him. We often lose our joy during those times. I would remind you that Christians don't lose their salvation. They lose the joy of their salvation. Disobedience will rob you of your joy of your salvation. But God, He lovingly disciplines us. He, lovingly, he has a hand that is gentle yet firm as He guides His children back to the center of His will. And sometimes it hurts a little. Tonight, we want to look at lessons of Moses. <laughs> uh, we want to see how God steers him back to the center of his will and see if we can apply these to our own battle in life, right? Uh, 
And so we'll look at four thoughts. First, God's divine power is greater than your, your lack of faith, right? You, we all struggle with a lack of faith at times. God's power is stronger. So we're going to need to call on him at times. We're going to need to say things like, God, I cannot do this. <laughs> I do not have the strength for this. Then we'll see how God exposes his wisdom and strength through our weaknesses. He loves to do that. So many people say, oh, this guy would just get saved. He has all the gifts. He doesn't do that. He finds cowboys and does stuff like that. You're like, you got the wrong guy. We talked about that, right? And, and you begin to realize he doesn't want the person who has everything put together and thinks they're the next answer to whatever the church needs. He often uses those who are weak. We'll also see that God's sinless anger often awakens us to righteous behavior or righteous obedience. God does have an anger. It's not like ours. We'll see that. But often he uses it to awaken you to his purposes and plans. And then, finally, we'll learn how to prepare for righteous obedience. There's some good examples towards the end of the text. Lord willing, we'll get that far. Number one, lack of faith is met with the divine power of God. Look at verse 1, chapter 4. Moses said, What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, The Lord has not appeared to you. This is now Moses' third objection. He's trying to get out of this job. <laughs> And he's on his third objection to why he's not God's man here. Here, Moses' objection is, is probably raised from his previous experiences. I failed last time I was there. Um, and I don't think my brethren, my fellow Israelites, will follow me. And think about this. He says at the end of verse 1, the Lord has, they said, they'll say to me, the Lord has not appeared to me. Well, I think that's a decent argument, right? They, these people would not be in the same position Moses was. They, they weren't there at the burning bush. They didn't hear Yahweh speak. They didn't hear anything about take your shoes off and come to me in a right way. They didn't want to hear none of that. So, so Moses has a, 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 little, a legitimate, somewhat legitimate, but he's, he's got a motive down in his heart that will be exposed here shortly. Moses believes that they will reject his word. Notice the word believe there. Um, here it is not used... Um, in a way like the New Testament would use. It's more used here, they, uh, we would translate it, it could be translated this way, they will not accept me. It's not the word for belief in God that we would see that same context or syntactical structure of that. It is, they, don't, they won't accept me. You can see where he's focused on. He's not saying they're not going to accept you, God, they're not going to accept me. He does not see that God is going to speak for him, through him. Now, here Moses was concerned not only that they wouldn't accept them, but notice the word they would not listen to him. It's interesting the Hebrew words. Like you guys in, in uh, seminary are getting ready to start Hebrew in Jan uh, January. What a wonderful language it is to study. Um, but here it also has the idea of listening, meaning the, the word has the idea of hearing something with the goal of acting. James kind of picks up this idea of being just hearers but not doers. So he says, I don't think they're not only going to listen to me, but they're not going to act. So he's coming with a very sharp uh, objection to God that this isn't going to work. 
They won't believe me. They're not going to follow me. But God's patient, isn't he? He's on his third objection and God hasn't smitten him dead yet. And even as, he, as God is, has his will decreed already, he's already laid down. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He, he has his whole plan. He's not trying to, well, I guess I'm going to have to try plan B because Moses isn't cooperating. He does not change his plans because they're perfect. But he is patient. And God knew Moses was reluctant. And, and so through his reluctancy, he is going to show his power. He's going to even show greater power. So, so that in the end, Moses will not be able to take any, any of the glory. Sunday night we were in DTP 2. I was filling in for Paul. And we were talking about the decrees of God. And we study depth and depthly of the decrees of God. And we see things like this in the New Testament where God foreordained, preordained by his foreknowledge. And then it says, but you put him to death, speaking of Jesus Christ. And so God has this plan that's not unaltered by the sinfulness of man. Though he allows the sinful man to be a part of his plan, they are responsible for it, but he still puts it forth. We see this extremely worked out in the, in the person of Nebuchadnezzar. Do you remember him? Grass eater? He got in a lot of trouble, didn't he? Stood on the wall. Said, look what I've done. That afternoon he's eating grass. At the end of that time, he says this. Listen to this. Thinking about the plans of God. Would You think man can thwart the plans of God? You think our nation and the things that are going on here is thwarting the plans of God? If you think that, then I would really encourage you to do a deep study on the on the. The, the predetermined will of God. Man does not alter the will of God. Now, we may not like what man's doing, but we realize that God, in his infinite wisdom, his infinite power, has control of all things, even the acts of sinful people. But listen to what Nebuchadnezzar says after his little jaunt in the, in the field. Daniel 4.35, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as Nothing. But he, God, does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? What a statement. He goes on, and that's worth reading when you have time to go back and see how Nebuchadnezzar is responding to the sovereignty and the greatness of God. But as we think back here, um, according to God's preordained plan, he's granted Moses the power to perform miracles here. We're going to start to see this. The first two miracles he gives are kind of like a trial run to address Moses' lack of, of confidence, lack of faith in, in his doubt. These signs were real. They, they demonstrated the power of God um, and his power over creation. Notice, that uh, as we work our way through uh, uh, Exodus, we'll see this over and over. Look at chapter 9, verse 16. I just want to give you a sneak preview. We're going to see this. This happens to be on the plague of boils. We'll get to that. But verse 16, this is a theme you're going to see throughout the book of Exodus, particularly as he's um, judging the land of Egypt and Pharaoh. He says things like this, but indeed for this reason I have allowed you to remain in order, he's speaking to the Pharaoh here, in order to show you my power, in order to proclaim my name throughout all the earth. People go, well, why didn't Pharaoh recant? 
God was holding them there till he was done displaying his ultimate authority over all of their gods, even the God of death and life. He was going to prove that. And so we, we must notice, notice as we study this that the divine power of God was illustrated in terms that Moses could understand. And so he begins to show him things that he's doing. Look at verse 2. Here's doubtful Moses. Remember, he's still in front of the bush. It's still burning. It's not being consumed. He's doubtlessly barefooted still and maybe not even looking still at God. And the Lord Yahweh says to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. So the Lord takes serious Moses' uh, Moses' fears, right? The, the problem Moses is raising, he takes it very serious. He says, look, they, they, they don't... They may not say that, they, they may say that I, you didn't appear to me. So, so God takes that very seriously. He says, what's in your hand? And Moses says, a staff. And so God here uses the object that Moses is most um, familiar with. Isn't that interesting? He didn't give him some object that he wasn't familiar with. He said, okay, I, I hear your complaint. It's invalid, but I'm, but I'm patient with you. What's in your hand? He goes, a staff. Well, let's Let's see what that's, and let's see if we can use that. Verse 3. Then he said, throw it to the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. Now, the word for serpent or snake here is a general word um, for that animal, that that reptile. Um, But Moses' reaction suggests that it's poisonous. Now, for me, they don't have to be poisonous. I still have that reaction. I just don't like them. But there's this natural, natural, prudent response to it. And obviously, this, this was a display of God's divine power, right? You just don't throw sticks down and they turn into serpents. That, that just doesn't happen, does it, every day? And so, God is showing his divine power. However, there could be uh, another level of understanding here uh, that he's doing when you think about this. First, he, he's using something very, very familiar to, to Moses to show him they're going to believe you. Trust me. But, but when you think about this word uh, serpent that's used, it's the exact same word, if you go back and trace this word down the Hebrew, it's the exact same word in Genesis chapter 3. You remember what happened there, right? A serpent showed up, and there he deceived Eve, and Adam fell into that deception well, what's interesting, and, and I just got thinking about this a little bit here uh, as I was writing this, this sign may possibly indicate God's divine uh, power, not only just creation, but over evil. The, the serpent has always um, been somewhat of a sign of evil because it's connected to Adam and Eve's story and it's connected to Satan's work. And when you think about this, and, and, and this, you might make this connection as soon as I say this, the, tradi- the traditional headdress of the pharaohs of the Egyptian had what on its head? Hmm. So out of all the things he could have turned that staff into, turns it into that cobra that sits on the head of the pharaoh. Now the Egyptians believed that this cobra that was formed and put on top of the headgear of the pharaohs symbolized might and dominion it symbolized sorcery which the gods had divinely endowed the pharaohs with so they themselves were looked at as gods now it's quite possible and and this is just my thoughts here that gods uses this display to show the lack of power egypt and its pharaohs truly had i'll take your god 
and I'll turn it into a stick. He he does that, and he's going to do that throughout these. Notice verse 4. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by the tail. And so he stretched out his hand and caught it and became the staff in his hand. Now, picking up a stake in this manner is probably not recommended, especially if it was something like a cobra or long. I would imagine most sheep herder staffs were, were, were quite long so they could reach out and poke and push and pull things. Um, so this could have been a very long snake. Um, and, and if you grab them by the, the back end, they can flip around and, and grab you and bite you. But uh, at this point, Moses has seen something he could hardly believe, you know. So, so he says, pick it up by the tail. And, and so Moses does that. And, and of course, the snake is back into the staff again. Now look at verse 5. Now he says this. There's a reason why he does this. That they may believe the Lord. Now remember, his complaint was, the Lord has not appeared to you. He's saying, they're not going to believe me. They're not going to listen to me. So Jesus says, look, I'm going to show this first sign. And the result of this first sign in verse 5 is that they may believe. Now, if you look forward, we'll get there in a, in a few weeks. When he does these signs for the elders and for Israel, there's never recorded how many does. does he all do? There's three of them here we're going to see this tonight. It doesn't say he did them all. And it's quite possible, this is my thought, it's quite possible they didn't get past this one. <laughs> okay, <laughs> All right, we believe you. You talk to God. Because this one's just, this is amazing. It's a flat-out supernatural event that only God himself could do and be real. So here in verse 6, we begin to see the next step. The Lord furthermore said to him. This is, again, the graciousness of God. I'll give you one sign. That'd probably be enough. But now God says, now put your hand into your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Now, without Moses saying anything, the Lord says, we're going we're to provide you with a second sign. You, you, this may not be enough. You're, you're, you're coming with me with all these objections. Uh, and so let's do something else. And, and here he sticks his hand inside his coat, and it comes out white as snow like leprosy. Now, the Hebrew language is very expressive, and often there's times we should probably put an expl- explanation point behind it when we're translating it. And this would be one of it. Can you imagine the shock of a, a fairly, you know, nice hand, and it comes out white as leprosy? They knew what it was. I mean, there's no doubt. You can see it in the text. They're not doubt- he's not doubting. What- he doesn't go, what is this? He knows exactly what it is. And so Moses' reaction is not stated here, but I can imagine the horror and dread that he must have had as he looked at this hand that he's looked at many times, and now it's white as snow with leprosy. And, and many attempts, I think, have made to spiritualize this, what happened here. Um, but I believe the Lord is just showing him, look, I have power over a king, and I have power over individuals. I can take your hand and turn it to leprosy. There's nothing I cannot do. I think he's showing him his strength. Again, look at verse 7. And then he said, put your hand uh, into your bosom again. So he put his hand back into his bosom. And when he took took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. So what what was the simple will of God must have been amazing to Moses. 
I mean, and just, just think about what he's doing. This, it's just him and Moses. It's not the pharaohs. It's not the elders yet. It's just him and Moses. And God is going, good enough yet? We got a, we got a, we got a rod, snake, rod. We got a clean hand, leper's hand, clean hand. Are you doing good? Verse 8. If they will not believe you, because <laughs> remember, he's, Moses has made a strong objection here, and he's going, okay, if they will not believe you or heed your witness, let me stop right here. Do you think he's doing this actually for the Israelites or he's doing this for Moses? I think he's doing it for Moses. He is preparing his servant to believe in God in ways the people of Israel won't believe. But yet he, he says, look, if they, he, he'll go along and play with this a little bit, if they will not believe you and not heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the second. So what's fascinating about this is there um, is an emphasis that, look, they, they may not be convinced, but, but I'm going to boost your confidence and, and tell you something further. Now, this little phrase here that says in verse 8, Heed the witness. Do you see that? The, the Hebrew word, would, you could actually translate it this way. Heed the voice of your first sign. And heed the voice of the last song, sign. So, so he's, he's saying these things are going to speak in a way that you can't, Moses. He's helping him understand that I'm going to teach, I'm going to speak through these signs. And the people will believe. These, these amazing signs were... Uh, conveying the message that in chapter 3, verse 12, G, uh, God said, look, Moses, I will be with you. He's trying to say, look, your, your objections, I get them, but I'm going to be with you. I can turn a, a, a rod into a snake and back. I can, I can touch the human flesh of anyone and, and cause it to die in leprosy. And, and, and I, can, I can do other things that, that he's going to move on to the next one here, that are going to that are going to teach them that I have control over life and death. But you need to know I'm going to be with you. Look at verse 9. He doesn't end there. But if they do not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, then you shall take some of the water of the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Now, God certainly knew the stubbornness of his own nation, of nation, nation Israel. He calls them stubborn. And so he adds this third sign, right? Because we're not dealing with Egyptians right now. We're, we're dealing with the elders and the, the leadership and the Israelites themselves. So he says, look, let's add a third sign because I know my stubborn nation. I know how they're going to act. I know what they're going to do even when I have them out in the wilderness. So I want you to do, I want you to go down to the Nile and I want you to get some water from their sacred river. And, and this river that they believed was the source of all life. That was the Nile. It was worshipped. It was a source of life. And I, and I want you to pour it out in the ground and it's going to turn into blood and it's going to teach them something. It's going to show them that the, the thing that they think gives them life, I'm going to turn to death. That's what he's going to do. Because I have power over life and death. You're just going to go get a little bowl of water and pour it on the ground. What it's going to tell them is, whoa, wait a minute. If that's what happens, we're all dead. And so 
Our God is going beyond what you can even imagine to show Moses. He's showing him great kindness. He's being very patient with him to show him his power and what he's about to do. God already knows what he's going to do. He is not going to make up the ten plagues as he goes along. He already knows them, and he has them ordered, and they're ready to go. Now, these signs were meant to help people believe. In chapter 4, verse 29, if you just go a little farther, we'll come to this in a minute. It says, Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. So this actually happens. They actually go, but it doesn't tell us how many signs take place, but somewhere along, maybe just the first one, they performed the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And so Moses is now strike three on his objections. But he's not done. Number two. The weakness of the servants, the servant are matched, are no match for the wisdom and power of God. The weakness of the servant, these weak, are no match for the wisdom and power of God. Now we get to the fourth and last objection of Moses. But this is his strongest, and, and in this one will actually reveal his true desire. And Moses is now all of a sudden back focusing on himself. Before he was kind of putting the tension on the last one. They're not going to believe me. They're not going to listen to me. But now all of a sudden his last ditch effort is now to to, uh, show his own weaknesses and show his inability. He's now going to focus on himself. Look at verse 10. Then Moses says to the Lord, please Lord, I have never been eloquent. Neither recently nor in time past nor since you have spoken to your servant. <laughs> he's, he's rounding up his whole life here. For I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Interesting enough, Moses changes his use of the word of God, of God here as he now turns to himself. What he does is he switches from saying Yahweh, and you, can, you have to see this in the Hebrew because it's just recorded very similar in the English, but he switches the use from Yahweh and he employs on the God Adoniah the name of God, Adoniah. And what that means is simply is Adoniah is this supreme leadership and authority. And so Moses may be saying here, I, I'm not, Adoniah, I, I'm not like you. I'm not worthy to lead. I, I can't speak. I can't do what you do. But notice he says, please, Lord. He, he, he's, he's requesting permission to speak. Uh, uh, I think there's a humbleness here, but, but he's got an alternative motive here. And his fourth objection focuses on his abilities or lack of abilities to speak. But interesting enough, I want you to catch this because he might be lying here. Acts chapter 7 verse 22, or at least this has not been exposed, this gift in his life. Stephen, speaking about Moses, says this. Moses was educated in all the learning of Egypt. Now listen to this phrase. And he was a man of power in words and deeds. <laughs> See, what God's starting to do, and he does this with us, is he starts to peel away our excuses to get down to the heart of why we don't want to obey him. That's what he does. He does that with me. I don't know about you. Does he do that with you? He starts to peel away your excuses to show your own heart to yourself and say, I don't want to do this. And that's what we're going to see here. Now, some suppose Moses was being overly modest, and, and, and he, he might have been a little but, but in reality, he's making excuses because he's objecting to God's plan. 
He uses the word eloquent. It means uh, one of, uh, a man of many words. And then this term, slow of speech, I had to look this up. It's not used terribly, this word, but it means uh, my tongue and mouth are heavy. So, so I struggle to get things out of them. And I, and I don't believe this is pointing towards a speech impediment. I, I don't think that's what's happening here. But to someone who maybe words don't come easily, and I, I don't believe Moses lost his command of the Egyptian language, but probably saw himself as unable to, to think quickly and, in, and maybe in, engage or, or counter an argument that was thrown at him. And so he sees himself as weak, and he's using this as an excuse. Now, certainly Moses' quiet life as a shepherd um, for those last 40 years uh, he, he may not have said, I don't really don't want to go back in those intense negotiations. And, and possibly, thinking about all the difficulties that he's had, and the, it's driving him, and he's going, I just don't want to do this. I don't think I can do it. However, as we'll see, these objections just, they're really not objections. God can overcome any weakness. We've got to give Moses some credit. Notice in the verse 10, he calls himself your servant. It's equivalent to the word slave. And this title denotes that I'm in obedience to your your superior command. And here's my point here. God will often come to us, and and you know he'll, through the word of God, the preached word of God, or you're reading the word of God, you will sense that God desires you. He's, He's pushing you to do something. And you, you hear him, but, and, you, and you recognize that, that he's God and you're just a man or a woman or you're this lowly person that can't do that. And pretty soon you, you begin to play on that. Oh, God, I, I can't do this. I, I am this poor individual that doesn't have the ability to do this. I, 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 I can't. And I think this is what Moses' ploy is. Now look at verse 11 with me. The Lord said to him, who has man's mouth? <laughs> this is quite a statement here. Or who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So now this objection has gone far enough, right? God clearly rejects Moses' protest here. It's invalid, it's irrelevant. <laughs> and here God uh, describes that, that he alone, he, he alone endows individuals with the most positive things. He gives them a po- in the positive, he says, I give you a mouth that speaks, I give you eyes that see. In the negative, he says, look, I can make people deaf, I can make people mute, I can make people blind for my glory. We just saw that in Mark chapter 10. So God gives, God does not give a reason for these variations, but he simply claims the authority over them. And so you see he's had enough with this, I can't, I can't, I can't. That's us sometimes, isn't it? I remember a gentleman in our last church, for the longest time we were looking for a children's director, minister in the church. And he said he watched the ad in the bulletin run for a year. And he knew God wanted him to do it. He said, for a year I made excuses. I can't, I don't have time, we don't have the money. He said, I just made, for a year, he says, every day I'd sit down in church, open that bulletin, and there was that ad. And he said, I can't, I can't, I can't. And one, and he finally got to the point where he said, the Lord said to him, that's enough, I can't. 
And that guy, you can ask Gina, he became one of the best children ministry guys we've ever worked with. He, he seemed a bit rough and gruff on the outside. But he turned to have this passion because he quit saying, I can't. And God endowed him and strengthened him to do a job that better than most people we had ever had in that position. He loved those kids. He could lead other people. And he said, God just got tired of me arguing with him. And he won. And that's what he does. And that's what I think he's doing with Moses here. Do you remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, Paul is talking about this, this attack by Satan, and three times he's asked for it to be removed, and, and it's a difficult passage, and he's, he's hurting, and he's being probably attacked. Probably a lot of these attacks are, are, could be even spiritual from even the, the church in Corinth. But in the end, he says this, 2 Corinthians 12, 10, and he, God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for power in perfect in weakness, is perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weakness, Paul says, so that the power of Christ might dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content, listen to this, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distress, with persecution, with difficulties, for Christ's sake, for Christ's glory, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Listen, if you're wrestling with serving the Lord in some area, he loves to make weak strong. And it's us submitting to him and stop objecting to God. He already has it figured out. It's us lining up with his will versus making him line up with ours. This is what gives him the greatest glory. Look at verse 12 with me. God finally just says, now then go. And I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. I love this phrase. Now then go. God just presents Moses with a direct command. He's been going back and forth with him. He's been objecting, 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 objecting. And finally God says go. Just go. And this is what he told him originally when the whole thing started. He says in chapter 3 verse 10, I'm going to send you back to your people, my people. And now we've been through four arguments, four futile arguments of why he can't go. And this command just comes and asks for immediate action. But notice what he does. It just doesn't say, hey, go. Look at the terms that he uses. Notice in uh, verse 12 there. And I, even I, will be with you. Why, why does he say, I'll be with you? Why is it important to put a double pronoun in there? Because he wants no mistake that this is, this is not anybody else. This isn't a, 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 a well go, we'll see if I can make it type of attitude. I myself, the one who just turned that, that, that stick of yours into a snake and changed your hand, your flesh into leprosy, and the one that will show you that I can turn their life-giving water into blood, yeah, that's me who's going with you. What a statement. I'll be with you. Now, God assures Moses of his continual guidance and direction. I'm going to guide you and direct you. I, I think I've told you enough times where as I started in ministry, I, just, I told the Lord many times, 
I, I, I can't do this. You have the wrong guy. And one of my objections was I wasn't smart enough. I didn't, I didn't know how to do this. I couldn't read well. I couldn't study well. I didn't, I didn't do great in school. Uh, I, I had all these objections to go. And, and then as I finally went, I kept asking God all the time. And I must ask God, I don't know, thousands of times this question. God, will you give me wisdom? I, I have asked him that question so many times. Will you please give me wisdom? I need wisdom. James says, and that's the context, if you don't get it because you don't ask for it, he's talking about wisdom. And so I asked him and he did that. Now, now just a side note real quick. As we're thinking about the life of Jesus, back in Luke chapter 12, which would have been in the middle of his ministry, things are going really well, the crowds are following and all of this, he stops and has a conversation with his disciples. And, and in that conversation, he says to them, there's a time coming where they're going to bring you before the synagogues, and the rulers and authorities are going are to come after you. And he says, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. People say, well, I can't teach kids. Study the good material, give, and ask God. <laughs> He'll help you. And, and you, you just saw this played out as, uh, uh, for one, as Peter is in front of the Sanhedrin in chapter 4. Him and John, they bring him out of prison and circle around him. And there's Caiaphas and his sons and others there, those who killed Christ. And this one who constantly opened mouth and inserted foot says some of the most amazing things. And this is what God had promised him. And so I want you to understand this Luke chapter 12 passage because this is what God does. He helps you. And I think if we just keep objecting, 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 what we're really saying is, God, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. I don't believe you. See, faith has to be greater than our weaknesses. And God will give you that faith. So Moses is worrying too much about future possibilities that he has no control over. Anybody do that? Man, I just can't drive to Orlando today. It's going to be so bad. And you start thinking, oh, you know, are this going to happen? Is this going to happen? People just get froze in life. Marriage, they, they know they need to be doing something, but they're so frustrated and so froze, and they have so many objections against their spouse, and, and they just freeze, and, and nothing gets done. God wants you to move. He'll help you. Notice verse 13. But he said, now Moses finally talks back here. Please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. Now, the first light, that sounds okay, doesn't it? You know what he's not saying? He is not saying, I'll go. He's not saying that at all. With, with all of Moses' objections met, God's met them all. Okay, they're not going to believe me. Well, now you've got a, a staff that turns to a snake. You've got a hand that turns to leprosy, and I'll turn their whole Nile into blood. With all those objections, God has met them graciously, one after another. Moses finally gets down to what he really means, I don't want to go. That's what he's saying in the text. And you go, how do you know that? Look at the next verse. <laughs> God's ticked off. See, that we finally got to it. And that's what God does with us. We keep coming with our objections, and he finally keeps telling us the truth of God's word. You read it every day, don't you? 
You're working through the book of Proverbs. You're working through Psalms. You're working through the life of Christ. You're reading through the epistles and you see the power of God over and over that nothing is impossible for him to do but you keep saying, I can't do it, I can't do it. And eventually he peels you back to the point where, yeah God, the truth is, I don't want to. And that's where he's got Moses now. He's pulled him back to where he's struggling. Number three, God's sinless anger awakens righteous obedience. The Bible says in verse 14, then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. We must understand that God's divine anger is not like ours. I want you to get that tonight. I don't want you to, I I know as humans we read this and when you say God is angry, what comes into your mind? Possibly the way somebody treated you, a parent, someone who abused you in some way. That's what comes to your mind and, and, and you cannot be more wrong than that. God is not like us. His divine anger is not like our sinful anger. Our human emotions are contaminated by sin. His or not, God's divine anger is perfect and accomplishes his predetermined plan. We need to know that. But nonetheless, we, we must uh, also interpret that God's anger is not just something to be dismissed or that he's not angry at all. Some people so talk about the love of God so much that they do not see his justice, and particularly that God is angry with sin. And the, and the Lord's anger is never unreasonable. It's never out of control. God's anger displays his involvement with the, with the world and what he thinks about what's going on. God's anger tells us what he thinks about what his people are doing when they're in sin. He deals with us. It also displays that God is, is not unaffected by our sinful rebellion. It bothers God. He comes down and he looks at what's going on. He sees it. He's very much aware of it. He reacts with displeasure towards all sinfulness that is against his holy will. We need to know that. We say, well, is God always angry? No. But it cost his son his death. See, that's why we take sin serious. This is why we try to help people. Well, you just don't understand my problems. Uh, Can I help you understand how God views your sin? This is serious stuff. It costs the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet we slife it off as everybody does it, or God understands it, or, or God's a God of love. Somebody recently told me, well, God will just forgive me. I'm just gonna keep living in my sin. God will just forgive me. Well, you need to understand, and this verse is important, God hates sin. He always has. And he deals with it. Even if they're lost, he deals with it in judgment, with the saved. He deals with it with discipline, right? Hebrews 12 says he disciplines the ones he loves. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how Moses knew he was angry. I don't know, did the burning bush flare up? You know, I, I don't know. Was, was Moses still even looking? Maybe he was still hiding his face. But whatever it was, God's anger overcomes Moses' sinfulness. There's a, there's, there's a great transition that starts to take place here. And it's important to note that disobeying God's word is no light thing. He's going to deal with this. Moses knows it. Look at the end of uh, the rest of 14. The first part said, Then the anger of the Lord born against Moses. And he said, Is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently, omniscient, 
And moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you, and he sees you, and he will be glad in his heart. Now, amazingly, Moses is graciously given further answer to his, his perceived difficulties. Now, in God's anger, he doesn't hurt Moses in any way. He actually gives him more answers. The Lord has already taken action. He's got Aaron already on the move. And I know he speaks well because he, he created Aaron. And he's on the way according to uh, verse 27. Now, God has, has Aaron coming. Doubtlessly, Aaron's his capable speaker. God's going to make Moses and Aaron better together than apart. Aaron, left by himself, will fall into sinful lack of discernment. We see him do that with the golden calf. Moses, at least at the beginning, can use Aaron's eloquent speech as he provides guidance and wisdom. So God, in his graciousness, even in this objection that he's having, he puts them together to make them better. Now notice he calls him Aaron the Levite. Uh, the, there's a bunch of liberal writing on this. Actually, I read this today, and, the, and these guys said this. They said, oh, well, that must mean this is, de- this is written later, so that takes away of the omniscience of God. God didn't know what was happening here. This is actually a later date because Aaron's called the Levite, and there were no Levites at that time, or, or Levite tribe that ministered um, in the offering. Well, there absolutely was Levite tribes. Um, uh, we know that at the end of Genesis, and, and he talked about all the lineage that would come from each of the sons, and so we knew it. So most likely, all this is, is Aaron maybe had a name that a lot of other tribes people had, Aaron, maybe Aaron of Judah or Aaron of Benjamin. He's Aaron of what? Levi. It's, very, it's very, not very hard. People like to make difficulties. But don't, don't miss this. God's foreknowledge. Aaron the Levite. Aaron the one who I am going to make the first priest that will minister before me and all of his sons behind him. So don't miss that either. Look, notice verse 15 and 16, and then we've got to quit here and we'll have to tackle some of this another night. Um, you are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I, and I, here he goes again, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth, and I will teach you what you are to do. Moreover, he shall speak for you to the people, and he, and he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as a God to him. Now, what a statement here. God, God now starts to explain the details to Aaron, I mean to Moses, about how Aaron's going to assist him. Look, I'll, I will be the ma- your mouth, and you, will, uh, and you will be his mouth. I'll teach you discernment and wisdom and truth, and you will speak through Aaron's mouth. In, in chapter 7, we'll see this. God calls Moses a prophet. And that's basically what he's saying. That's what prophets were. They came and they were the mouthpiece for God. They spoke for God. And that's exactly what he says we're going to do. So he says, look, you're going to be my prophet. This tells us much about uh, Moses and Aaron's ministry. And this is how they worked, at least early on. And the message they spoke was given um, and they did not produce it themselves. It was given to them. This is a great statement. No one can look at Moses and say, wow, you really came up with a good plan there, didn't you? No, it was God that put all this together verse 17 and you shall take in your hand this staff which with which you shall perform signs so Moses is told and I just want you to think about this for a moment Moses is told go take on the mighty empire with your stick I'm with you we want you know F-18s tanks He's got a stick in God. 
David had stones in God. This is what he does. He doesn't need man's ability. He sends a man out with a stick and says, I'm with you. And all that God wants to do is done through this man by the provident decrees of God. And notice, we remember that he says, you'll come back here and worship. God had already said, this is all going to be fulfilled. So take your stick, go meet your brother, he's on the way. And we're going to change the world. And he did. And he obeyed him. There's much more in this text. I'm clearly out of time tonight. And we'll come back and tackle this. But I'd love for you to read a little further in this text and get ready for this. Because he's going to do some things that are, that are part of getting ready. Um, and the next point deals with how righteous, righteous obedience prepares. And, and I want to give you this because I think there's enough in here where we can learn. You say, well, Scott, I think maybe God is calling me to do something. I think he's been calling me for a while to get involved in this ministry or that ministry or serve him in a way. Well, I think this text actually shows a lot of wonderful ways of, of how and, and where God will prepare you to do it. As I studied it, I found so many things that correlate it with my own ministry. Dealing with family. Being honest about sin. Um, uh, short accounts when, when, when sin is brought forward, how to deal with it, how to deal with it quickly. God's going to take Moses through all of this as he prepares him to go do an amazing task and strengthen him. Well, we'll leave it at that. I, I, I was hoping I'd get through this, but um, it is a big passage, isn't it? And there's a lot going on here. Uh, so we'll leave it off with God's answer to all of his objections. He's sending him Moses. He is going to, he is going to speak and act through him and he is being sent with his stick. Okay, we'll leave it there, and then we'll come back. Father, thank you for this time in the Word. Thank you for a good reminder, Lord, as we often feel ourselves as being inadequate. We often feel like we are the wrong person for the job. In fact, like Moses, we probably think there's someone else out there that should be doing the job. Send someone else. I'm not going. I wonder how many in this room have thought that or had that pass through their mind in some way, Lord. But I, I know, Lord, that you love to use people that are, in many cases, just nobodies. You love to show your power and your authority. You love to show your strength and might in a way that none of us who, who can't do it on our own strength could take any credit and so, Lord, I pray for those in this room who have been wrestling with things, wrestling with obedience in their life, whether that's in a marriage relationship or serving you in some way, Lord, whatever it may be, Lord, I pray that tonight you strengthen them. They would hear your call and they would say, here am I, and they would begin to drop their objections, their I can'ts, Lord. And I pray that you would use many in this room to say, I I'll go. I don't have much, Lord, but I'll trust you. And so, Lord, rise people up to serve you in many ways. There's lots of events going on this, this year, and neighbors that need to be cared for, people that are suffering, baskets that need to be delivered to people who don't know Christ. Lord, there's, there's always something for us to be engaged with. Help us to stop objecting you to your call, Lord, and start saying yes. Lord, thank you for being patient with us. 
Thank you for your tender care as you direct us back to your sin of your will. We give you praise for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.